All right, this time for sure. I, I hit fucking record. All right, let's go. What? Salut. Bienvenue au podcast de Tribble Trip. Welcome to the Travel Tribe Podcast. Every podcast should start with a mix of some Djibouti and some arrested abroad tales. <laughs> <laughs> We're not talking about my booty today. We're talking about your booty. I mean, Djibouti. <laughs> Joe booty. Yo booty. Joe booty. <laughs> Tell us it's about this story. <laughs> yeah. So Djibouti is a um, tiny, tiny uh, country in the east coast of Africa or the east side of Africa. And... I was trying to climb the tallest mountain of every African country. So I spent five years traveling to all 54 African countries. and I want to climb the tallest peak of every country. And Djibouti's peak is only about 2000 meters tall. It's called Musa Ali. But it, at the summit, it has three countries that touch it. You have Ethiopia and Eritrea and Djibouti. And Eritrea doesn't like its neighbors effectively. Well, Sudan, it's okay. But the military of all three countries are around the mountain. So I tried from the Djibouti side, didn't do it. I could not try from the Eritrea side, so I tried to do it from the Ethiopian side. I initially got clearance to do it, but as I camped there overnight, next to the military, when I woke up the next morning, they said, sorry, we have to arrest you um, because uh, we can't let you go any further. And so they detained me for like six hours just for having done it. And I never did get to climb that tallest mountain. In fact, there were three other countries in Africa I was not able to make to the tallest mountain, Sudan, uh, Tunisia, and Eritrea. Okay, very good. So the lesson of, of uh, the day is you can't get your booty up Djibouti <laughs> Summit. <laughs> I could not get my Djibouti up there. <laughs> I could not get my booty. Maybe I could get your booty up there. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So let's bring this back a little bit. And I'm kind of curious on uh, what inspired you to begin your journey and what inspired your fascination with travel and, and living abroad or, or traveling abroad? My parents, effectively, because I have a foot in four continents. My father's French. My mom is from Chile. My, I was born in San Francisco, California, so North America. And then my wife is from Africa. So four continents. I have three passports. And as a result, I was kind of born to travel. And as a result, that's, I think, what kind of got me into it. And both my parents were somewhat adventurous, especially my dad. And I think that kind of just somehow rubbed off on me. And so following, for example, college, while most people were following the traditional route of working, did you also follow the same, same path or did you just go abroad right away? So after college, you're right. I did go work in Latin America. I was working in, I stayed in Caracas for several months. I was in Argentina. Anyway, a lot of Latin America. And as a result, that was unusual at my time back in the 1990s when I graduated college. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, not so exotic. But I think that's what helped me get into Harvard Business School because they say, wow, this is interesting. Such a young punk who's getting all this international experience. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. And so while you were living in Latin America, what kind of inspired you to go back and go to business school? I was looking for a way to do some startups in Silicon Valley because I was very much interested in robotics. And I had a degree in religion from Amherst College, and I knew that wasn't going to cut it. I needed an MBA to have a little bit more credibility. And so 
I said, okay, I'll get some business experience in Latin America and that will help me go. And so that's why I went to Harvard and got my MBA. And then all of a sudden I had credibility. Now everybody took me seriously. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice how an MBA, a piece a document just gets you that credibility. Credibility. <laughs> Silly but true. Yeah, I actually did a uh, really fun uh, MBA program as well. Uh, it's called the Global MBA. And uh, what happens is there's four partnering universities from four different countries. So there's uh, Germany, Poland, uh, China, and Florida. And so each university gives 10 students. So there's 10 Chinese, 10 Americans, 10 Polish, and 10 Germans. And you rotate each semester uh, throughout your program. And, of course, they put you in multicultural uh, teams all the time to kind of show you the differences culturally and you have to learn how to work with Chinese and learn how to work with the highly efficient Germans and <laughs> with the overconfident Americans. <laughs> so <laughs> so it was, uh, it, was, it was also a really f- a great experience and also to, to each culture or sorry, each country we went to, we learned about the business culture there. So for example, when we were in Florida, we went to an Anheuser-Busch factory and PGA tours. Uh, when we were in Germany, we went to Ivonic and DHL and BMW. So it was a really cool way uh, to build credibility, I guess, and also get to travel at the same time. It is one of the biggest disappointments that we have in the United States. The United States is my favorite country. I love it to death. Mm. But because it's geographically isolated and it has only two neighbors, you know, Mexico and Canada, Americans are really weak with regards to international experience, even though everybody is affected by the things that we do in the United States. And yet the U.S. citizens themselves are poorly traveled and have very little cultural sensitivity outside of you know the United States. So... I think it's paramount for people to do programs like you did. I know Thunderbird, which is a MBA program, I think in Arizona, they also have a very strong international focus. And I think it's getting more and more. But whether you go to MBA school or not, or business school or not, doesn't matter. Just get some international experience, get out of your comfort zone. That's what I'm encouraging people to do. Mm -hmm. And so when you were after you finished your MBA and you were kind of working in Silicon Valley, what kind of inspired you to begin all these journeys of going abroad and starting all these stories and adventures? So in business school, they teach you how to make a billion dollars. And I thought to myself, okay, great. What do I do once I have a billion dollars? So when I was walking across the Appalachian Trail, I had about four months to do it. And I asked myself, well, what would I do if I had a billion dollars? Okay, great. I I succeed. I make it. Yay. Okay, now what? What the fuck am I going to do with my time? And so ask yourself that, Jordan, and anybody who's listening to this. What the fuck do you do with your time once you have a billion dollars? What do you do? You wake up in the morning. What the fuck do you do? (laughs) And when you answer that question, that is probably your passion. And try to find a way to make that passion of yours to be your career. So that is the thing that motivated me. And I thought, okay, well, I would love to travel. I would love to go out there and explore. And, and, and that's what I would do if I was a billionaire. I would just go travel the world. I'm like, okay, wait a second. I don't need a billion dollars to do that. <laughs> I could do that now. You know, I could do that with you know, a few thousand dollars. So why do I have to wait until I have a billion dollars to pursue my ultimate goal and objective in life? And so I thought, okay, I just need to restructure my world, restructure my life so I could do it. And nowadays, pursuing that passion, if that happens to be your passion, is easier than ever because now, of course, so many people are remote and et cetera. So that is my big advice to all your listeners to just don't postpone your passion, especially if you're young. Take chances, take risks, go for it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when I was when I began my journey, Rod, was actually a decade ago, January first um, was always my my anniversary when I left, and. I remember when I was leaving, everyone was telling me, what are you doing? You're crazy. You should keep working. Just go travel and do all these adventures when you retire. And it, it's so, that is just so, I feel like um, it's, a, it's a, I think people are also scared to also take on their own passions. And so they kind of push that on you, uh, all these fears. They put all these fears on you because I can't imagine as a retired person being 65, 70, hiking mountains. And I, mean, I know it's possible, but it's probably not going to, you never know what's going to happen to your health or staying in hostels or or um, or hitchhiking or snowboarding or whatever, all these activities. You have no idea what's going to happen to your health or whether you're going to have the energy to do that. So it just doesn't make sense to postpone and wait until that eventual date sometime in the future to to get after it so i i totally can relate to that how about this you don't even know if you're going to be fucking alive yeah, yeah that's the <laughs> true you can you can get that billion dollars it might be sitting in the account <laughs> someone else is going to use it and you're dead <laughs> exactly. yeah i mean i a business classmate of mine he died at 36 years old because he had brain uh, some sort of brain tumor or cancer or something like that that killed him at 36 mm-hmm and, you know, I've had several of my uh, friends who died in their 20s, 30s. You know, it just shit happens. Yeah, absolutely. You never know. I'm also kind of curious because you have taken kind of a business route, but you're also travel and adventure. Do those kind of complement each other or are those two separate tracks? Or how do you kind of view the, those two things? Yeah, I, it's... It, you can combine them in different ways. In my case, I, I segmented them in totally different. So I earned money for a while while I was working in Silicon Valley. I worked for Microsoft. I consulted for them too. And I did uh, also worked in Silicon Valley. And there I lived like a monk. I lived like a student. And I never raised my standard of living. That's, by the way, another tip for those listening. Do not raise your standard of living as soon as you're able to. Just because you get a raise, pretend you, didn't, pretend you got a demotion instead. <laughs> and, and, and pretend you got less money. And just save that money away because that's what I call fuck you money. And you, we all need to have it just so you can, you know, in a relationship or a job or, you know, maybe you're sick and tired of living in Chicago. You can say fuck you to Chicago. You can say fuck you to your job, your, whoever your girlfriend, boyfriend is, and you can leave. If you don't have that fuck you money, you're kind of a prisoner to your mortgage, to your car payments, to whatever else that you've your rent and your crap that you've bought. And you don't want to be in that position, ideally. You want to be able to pursue your passion, pursue your dreams, and to chase after that, what I call the billion-dollar question. In other words, what you would do if you had a billion dollars. And if you strangled yourself, in, inhibited yourself, by, uh, by getting a, living a, beyond your means, or at least at your means, you're not going to have that flexibility. So live below your means, and that way you can have that maximum flexibility. Mm-hmm. And was there a certain point when you decided that, okay, like enough is enough in Silicon Valley, now I'm ready for my adventures. Uh, was there any kind of specific point that, that was the catalyst to all of this? The Appalachian Trail. So when I was hiking that trail, I asked myself what I would do with a billion dollars. And I said, you know what, I'd travel. So that was the catalyst. But that happened in 2001. So I didn't actually take action until about 2004 when I finally went to Eastern Europe and I took action. Then I came back, did some consulting. And finally, it was in 2006 where I finally cut the cord and said, no more. Goodbye, corporate America. I'm going to be uh, a nomad from here on out. So, for 2006, that's when it happened, and that was the. That, but the catalyst happened in 2001. So it took me about five years of of 
of preparing for that mo- mm-hmm. moment. And during this preparation time, were there any kind of fears that were going through your head uh, that you were maybe nervous about before pursuing this kind of lifestyle? Not really. I mean, that's one of the great things about having, let's say, an MBA is that you have, or any kind of advanced degree, is that you have an insurance policy, you have a safety net, and you know that if all hell breaks loose, you can drop back and work and use that degree and the diploma that you have, or maybe the connections that you have. So I know I could talk to my classmates and finagle a way to get a job if I was starving. Um, so I wasn't too worried about the financial thing. I think in most people who finally make that break, their their main thing is, why didn't I do it fucking sooner? That's their main, you know, hitting themselves on the head. Like, <laughs> I could have done this earlier. Why didn't I do this earlier? And so that's my big advice to you is just to like, don't postpone um, go for it sooner or later. And nowadays, it's easier than ever. If let's say you want to do, you asked me earlier about m- commingling uh, travel and adventure with business. You can do it nowadays because so many jobs are remote and it's easier than ever. Back when I was doing it, there was no Zoom calls. There was nothing like that. So it's a lot easier now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree anymore. And, and your dollar goes so much further when you're um, going to most of these other countries, whether it's Southeast Asia, Central America, Southern America. And yeah, it's you, you really get to live an adventurous lifestyle and comfortable if you have a, some kind of US income coming in. Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned that another, mm-hmm, by the way, ahead. sorry to interrupt, but the, you have another strategy. You can also go to a high income country, for example, like Switzerland or Japan and work there and live like a student. And you can also save a lot of money because a lot of times the salaries in Luxembourg are really high or Dubai are really high. And if you learn to live below your means, you can actually, and that's another way of saving a lot of money. So yeah, that's another strategy. The one you mentioned is, is brilliant as well. You know, get your U.S. salary or your whatever country you come from and then go to, let's say, a low-income country and then really live below your means there or at least at your means. And anyway, you, you, you can save a lot of money that way. So either way is a good strategy. What was your yeah, next question? Sorry. Absolutely. And I just remember, like, <laughs> I remember the first time I was in Thailand, I, the song in my head that was just popping up was, oh, it feels so good to be king. Because I was just like, I couldn't believe how far the U.S. dollar can get you from private tuk-tuk drivers to villas overlooking, you know, gorgeous beaches and having, you know, homemade Thai meals for a couple of dollars. And oh, so that, that really stands out to me. Um, but yeah, the question I wanted to ask you is I've been kind of interested as well in the Appalachian Trail, uh, um, the, the Appalachian Mountain Trail, and I'm kind of curious on uh, preparation for it. So uh, when is the best time to, to do the trail and how many months should you prepare for it? The best time to go is in the spring. Depends on whether you're going from south. Most people go from south to north. In that case, they, they depart in March or, or for the PCT, they're departing in April or May. In on uh, Anyway, you can do April as well in the Appalachian Trail and the Continental Divide Trail also. So you're looking at March, April, May as a departure date if you're starting from the south or going north. And you want to be done around October. Uh, middle October at the absolute latest in general, because that's when winter starts setting in. You can also do the reverse, which is what I've done. I started in the north. You start maybe in June, and then you work your way, and you want to be done around Thanksgiving or the end of uh, end of, uh, of, of November. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of when you want to do it. And how to do it, you want to train and, and have real-life situations on the weekends where you leave on Friday night, spend overnight, get up the next day on Saturday early, and just walk all day, walk for 10 hours, see how that feels. 
Then you go to sleep on Saturday night and you wake up Sunday morning, you get up and do it again. And you walk all the way till you get back to your car and then you, you get home and finally get your shower. So you spend two nights outside. Ideally, that's what you want to do. And maybe take a three-day weekend. You know, let's say, let's say it's going to be 4th of July. You take an extra vacation day. you got a four-day weekend and go to a national park and do a, an extra long trail. Try to pull in like at least 50 miles minimum mm-hmm. in, in those four days, minimum. And, and try to do more if you can. Try to do 80 if you can pull that off. So that's the best training. That's great advice. Speaking of miles, how many miles on average were you walking and how long is the actual trail? So I was walking on the Appalachian Trail about 25 miles on average per day. On the Continental Divide Trail, I was, sorry, on the Pacific Crest Trail, I was doing about 30 miles per day. On the Continental Divide Trail, I was doing about 35 miles per day on average, which is about 50 kilometers. And the reason I was doing much more on the Continental Divide Trail is I was attempting to be the first person to do a round trip, start from Mexico, go up to Canada and turn around and come back and do that in seven months. So I had to go at a, at a faster pace. And what I mean by faster pace, not as that's more miles per day. That meant more hours of hiking. I'm not hiking any faster. In all three trails, I was hiking about three miles an hour, about five kilometers an hour. And so the pace wasn't changing. It's just the amount of hours you put in. So you got to get up at the crack of dawn and go all the way till sunset, which sometimes could be like 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. at night in some some cases, depending on how much daylight you have. And I didn't like to hike too much at night. So that's the kind of the distances that you would want to do. But you can definitely get away on the Appalachian Trail. You can get away as little as 15 miles per day. That's totally fine. That's totally doable, too. Mm-hmm. And regarding preparation for the trail, what are you uh, bringing with you, and uh, what about food and water? So you want to bring as little as possible. I had about three kilograms or about six pounds of gear. I was very meticulous at just being the bare, bare, bare minimum. As far as food and water, you're going to try to resupply roughly every four days or so. And in some cases, that means going to a grocery store that's near the trail. You might have to hitchhike down to get the, to the grocery store and hitchhike back to the point where you got off the trail to resupply. And... You uh, want to sometimes ship yourself a box. So before you leave on the trip, you might have a box of dehydrated food that you're going to you're going to have somebody, maybe your mom or your friend who's going to mail that package so that it's waiting general delivery at a post office somewhere near the trail. And you go pick up that package and then there's all your food because some places on the trail don't have a very good store. They might have just the equivalent of a convenience store, a 7-Eleven or something like that. And you're not going to be able to get very good nutritious food there. And so you're going to want to mail yourself your own package. So it depends on your different strategies. Uh, but that's the general idea of how you resupply. As far as water is concerned, there's plenty of water usually on most of the trail, except for the uh, 1,000 kilometers or 700 miles of desert you're going to have to go through in California and, uh, let's say, New Mexico if you're doing the CDT. And there, there's known water caches or known water places along the way, but you have to just plan your day out. And there you have to carry a lot more water. Mm-hmm. That's the only challenge. Mm-hmm. But most places, you're fine. And, and yeah, you, and you probably want to have a, a way to purify the water as well. Okay, very good. And you had mentioned trail angels earlier when we were spoken. What are these trail angels? Trail angels are these wonderful people who want to support the dirty, smelly hikers that are out there. <laughs> And they, uh, you'll bring random things. They'll, they'll might deposit uh, jugs of water in the middle of the desert. They might uh, put underneath the trees um, some uh, Coca-Colas and Pepsis and things like that just uh, as, a, as a gift, anonymous completely. Others will pick you up as a hitchhiker and they'll invite you back to their house and then they'll you know, let you shower and do your laundry and, and sleep in a real bed. 
just stuff like that. And all those people are trail angels. And they're fabulous. They're all over the trail. And they're all over the world, too. I mean, they're not limited to the United States. All over the planet, whether you're in Iran or whether you're in Africa, you're going to meet people who are going to help you along the way. And you're going to find many more people. The world's a lot safer place than the media lets you think. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have not only walked the Appalachian Trail, but you've also walked across America? Well, north and south, um, I have. I've never gone east to west. East to west is kind of boring because most of America, if anybody's looking at a map, the, the mountains kind of, there are three mountain ranges, the, the, Sierra, uh, the Sierra and the Cascades, which is in, along the uh, California, Oregon, Washington border. And then you have the Rocky Mountains and, of course, the Appalachian Trail. So those are the more interesting. I like to walk up and down mountains. So I went across America four times, if you count north to south cutting across, and if you count the Appalachian Trail as one of those times, because mm-hmm. you're starting up in Maine and you're ending down in Georgia. So that's almost across uh, America in that sense. Again, north to south, but never east to west. People do that. I just don't see the appeal of walking across Nebraska. It just, it <laughs> I don't see the appeal of driving through it. So walking through it sounds like <laughs> a nightmare. <laughs> oh my <Sorry>. god, <laughs> that's funny. Um, so, so you you had a lot of journeys in America, and then uh, you also had a lot of journeys in Africa. What got you interested in uh, hiking in Africa? So I had never been to the African continent before. At that point, I had been to, I don't know, about 70-something countries. Now I've been to 125 countries. But Africa, prior to going there, I had never been to the continent. And I just wanted to go to every single country. I was, uh, I was born and raised in San Francisco, and going to Africa is a long trip. So I thought to myself, if I'm going to go there, I'm not going to leave until I visited all the countries and tried to climb the tallest mountains. So for five years, I never left the continent, and I was visiting systematically all the countries. I bought a car in Spain, drove it across the Strait of Gibraltar, and just spent five years uh, wandering around the continent, driving everywhere, trying to get to the tallest mountain. And I don't know. I just love hiking, and so I walked across uh, the the half of Madagascar, um, sorry, uh, sorry, all of Madagascar, <laughs> north to south. I did uh, Morocco, the High Tatras, the, which are the big mountain range, as well as the Drakensberg Traverse in South Africa, and several other uh, trails, and of course, all the mountains along the way. It was fabulous. It's challenging just to get to the tallest mountain in many cases. The mountain itself may not be hard. It may sometimes be just a hill. But that's the challenge in Africa is just (laughs) the infrastructure is really horrible. (laughs) And so that's the challenge. Oh, very cool. And while you're discussing these long-distance hikes, I'm kind of thinking back to when I spent a lot of time uh, living on uh, Koh Tao Island as a scuba dive instructor. And when I spend more time on the island, I get really in tune with the nature and I'm up with the sun, I watch the sunsets. I'm in the water. I notice the differences that are going on weather-wise, and I'm really in tune with. It. There's like a shift that happens after I spend a couple of days there compared to being in the city. Is there any kind of shift that also happens during these long-distance hikes um, while while you're on them? Yeah, they're transformative. Absolutely, uh, I think. I gave uh, three TEDx talks, and in my very first one is about how travel transforms you. The other one is about picking up three thousand hitchhikers, and. I just think that when you get into that zone, especially in the wilderness, you finally break through. Maybe it takes you two weeks, maybe it takes three weeks, but at some point you finally disconnect, especially if you really learn to discipline yourself from electronics and try to avoid them. You can really get into a different zone where you get into rhythm. And that's what our ancestors who didn't have digital stuff were like people who just you know wake up and down with the sun there was no electricity and you know, it's funny you know I was, I was listening to 
you know, people complaining that, you know, in Ukraine, there's no electricity. I'm like, wow, but that's how all their ancestors live. Mm-hmm. There's no electricity. There's no uh, natural gas heating. They had a different, we, our ancestors were a lot more tough than we are. And I think by going into the wilderness, you toughen yourself up. You lower your standard of living. You get used to being happy with little. And those are secrets that will serve you throughout your entire life. Mm-hmm. And m- m- adding on to this, what are the other lessons you have learned throughout your journeys? Uh, anything else that kind of stands stands out in your mind that, that you've kind of taken away from all these tra- travels? I mean, certainly the, one of the key things that anybody who's been traveled to over 100 countries will, will say is that human beings on this planet are generally good. And you're going to get, find a lot more helpful people than you are going to find people who are criminal or trying to rob you. And so that's one of the key lessons and the key takeaways. I find it fascinating to learn about their differences uh, and that we have between different homo sapiens. But one thing that we all share is this sense of, of, of helping out the fellow man. And that is something that is relatively common. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I, I also find the same um, the same kind of conclusion as well in my head uh, that most people generally, especially when you go out from condensed cities, I feel like in the cities, people yeah. it's kind of a rat race and people are fighting or competing for limited resources. And so you don't really get a good taste of humanity there. But when you go out into the countryside or places with um, more dispersed population, you're going to see people who will go out of their way to make sure that, um, you know, uh, good things happen. You remember a time when we got a flat tire in Vietnam and someone came over to help us. And I was like, we're going to get ripped off. I mean, we're stranded. There's no we have no other option. They could say one dollar or a thousand dollars and we're going to have to pay it because we have no other way to get out of here. And, you know, they charge us what seemed like a local price because only a couple of dollars to fix the tire. And I remember that kind of situation stood out in my mind that, you know, I think people generally are good. Um, and I think that's a good good takeaway. And you had also mentioned about simplicity. And it also reminds me of, of living when I was in Thailand. You see you see, you know, local ties living in huts with, with very limited amount of possessions or material wealth and every day with a smile, you know, for them, it's just, it's just the, the, their, their, their approach to life. They're just happy to have a, a small meal, hang out with their family. Um, and it's just, yeah, it, it, it's, it's nice to see the simplicity of, of local people as well when you're, when you're kind of going abroad. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to kind of dice, uh, get more into Africa and cause you spent five years there. Were there any kind of specific lessons or tips or advice you would give to people who are interested in exploring the African continent? Yeah. Uh, push yourself and, and go beyond your means. I mean, go, go beyond what you think is going to bother you. You know, in other words, if let's say, um, Egypt feels exotic to you, Go to Sudan, go a little bit further, go to Algeria instead of Morocco. I mean, not instead of in addition to Morocco. Um, if, you, if you feel comfortable with Senegal, then try Gambia or maybe uh, Guinea-Bissau. Anyway, whatever the country is, just try to go one further, a little bit uh, deeper into the continent, if you will. So you can get, start getting some contrast because in the end, you're going to discover that it's not nearly that scary at all. And, it's, and you're going to find some fascinating experiences and, and stories there. So that to me is the number one thing I would tell people is that pick what, wherever you pick in Africa, probably one of its neighboring countries is a little bit, quote unquote, scary or a little bit less known, fewer tourists go there. Mm-hmm. And speaking of some of these fantastic experiences, are there any kind of that of those that kind of come to mind right away that, that you had had while you were there? 
I really love the Sahara. I mean, I adore the Sahara. So Mauritania, Niger, also uh, Chad and uh, Sudan and those places just all on the Sahara and the, and the Sahel are just some of the most spectacular things because there's just nothing there. I mean, it's just wide open desert and there's just nobody there. Same thing with Namibia. Namibia is an enormous country and you can fit all of Western Europe in it and yet there's only two and a half million people in it. It just blows your mind the amount of empty space there is out there. Makes it really easy to camp, by the way, if you happen to have a car because mm-hmm. <laughs> there's nobody there. Um, anyway, it's it's... To me, I, I, I love going to the Sahara. Anywhere in the Sahara is just a magical dream. Yeah. And sp- speaking of you going around and traveling, what does your mm, travel look like? How are you getting around? What are you bringing with you? Where are you staying? What does that kind of look like? So one of the things that really benefited me was having done those three long trails in America, the PCT, the AT, and the CDT, is that it got me used to sleeping outside. It's like no big deal, whether there's a rainstorm, whether it's snowing, whether it's uh, hot, whether there's mosquitoes. It just, you know, I learned to do that because I spent so many months sleeping outside. And so all of a sudden I learned, I can just, if I can bring six pounds and live with six pounds for seven months in the wilderness, I can take six pounds and live in Prague (laughs) or go to, let's say, Eastern Europe. I mean, it's no big deal. Or anywhere in Africa, why do I need to have, you know, a lot more equipment or gear and and why do i need to insist on always sleeping in a bed and that will bring your travel costs down substantially it'll also allow you to be spontaneous because sure you can always stay in a hostel you might find one but what happens if you meet somebody along the way who's going to want to i don't know invite you over to their house and you have a priceless opportunity to meet a family to stay with locals you got to do it and so I suggest if people get used to camping outside, you have that in your back pocket. And you can always stay in hostels. But if all of a sudden the hostels are not available or they're full or whatever, or they're out of the way, or maybe you get invited somewhere, or maybe you just see a nice little park somewhere and you're like, huh, there's nobody at that park. I'll just go over there and sleep under a tree in a park. And I did that countless times in Eastern Europe. I even did it in Latvia in the winter. (laughs) 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 <laughs> I love that. They're probably like, oh, who's that homeless man from Lafayette? They're like, oh, wait, that's an American guy from San Francisco City who went to Harvard <laughs> Business School. <laughs> exactly. exactly right. <laughs> and no idea. Totally non sequitur. Yeah. yeah. But one of the things that I, I find very powerful is when we have these ideas in our head of uh, things that we're so dependent on. For example, I remember when I did my first 72-hour um Oh my God, what's it called? Fast. When I, when I didn't eat for three days, uh, I did a water fast. And I was like, wow, mind blown. I thought that you have to eat three times a day or four times a day. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this dependency on food was no longer a thing in my head where I was like, oh my God, I'm going to die if I don't eat today because I've already done three days. It's, it's totally fine. And I think it's the same thing kind of with, with, with housing and shelter that you're discussing right now is that you, if you can show yourself that you don't need, uh, you know, a hotel or a hostel wherever you go, that it's possible to, you know, find alternative ways, whether it's camping or staying with locals, then all of a sudden that, that fear and dependency of relying on that is gone. And you can have more of these kind of natural and adventurous experiences that you're discussing. So... And the challenge is to learn how to be happy mm-hmm. in those conditions too. Mm-hmm. Because one thing is I can survive fasting for three days, but can I do it with a s- smile on my face? Mm-hmm. And that, if you can get there, then you're in nirvana. Mm-hmm. Then you've really reached it. 
because some people will say, yeah, I can camp outside, but I can't do it with a smile. <laughs> well, then, you know, then that's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you got you to gotta learn to appreciate it. Yeah. This reminds me of, uh, so during that fast on the third day, my girlfriend at the time had arranged a double date and all you can eat Korean barbecue place. And I was like, you know, I can't eat. And it was like, there was no smiling there. That was like pure hell. I was just watching everyone <laughs> while I was sipping on my water. <laughs> I hope you, I hope you dumped. Yeah, she learned her lesson after that. Okay. <laughs> um, but one of the things that we we um, we discussed uh, with with Derek and some other travelers is staying with local people and how that allows you to kind of break down the walls of locals and also get a good chance for you to really get to know the culture. Um, can you discuss a little bit more about this? Is this kind of factor in when you're traveling? Absolutely. To me, it's the best part about traveling is staying with locals and meeting them. And there's several strategies you can do to increase the odds of that happening. One, number one, go to countries that are not super touristy. So you're not going to probably stay with a local if you're running around Paris all day long. But if you go to, let's say, a a really remote part of France, then there's a high chance that uh, a French person will invite you if you're hiking some trail or the Camino de Santiago or something like that, or what they call uh, le, le chemin Saint-Jacques, that is a way that you could meet somebody potentially. Um, and it's certainly in low-income countries, perfect opportunity to do that. And the beauty about staying with locals is that you, many times locals, especially in low-income countries, there's multiple generations of families. And usually the grandparents are living with the, the middle, you know, the parents, and then the children are there too. So you get to see three generations in one household. And maybe the grandparents cannot speak whatever languages you speak. But sometimes the children can translate and be that insight into the culture that you can see. You can also see how they live. You can see whether they have hot water or not. You can see how they eat, how they cook. Uh, is their bathroom? Is it a squat toilet? Is it a, is it a regular toilet? Do they have an outhouse instead of uh, a regular uh, thing? Do, where do they get their food? And you can see all these insights that really open up your mind and stretch your brain and learn about the planet that we live on. And to me, that is fascinating. You can also see the relationships between men and women. You can see how the husband treats the wife. You can see how the parents treat the kids. And you see how the respect that the elders get. All these things are just fascinating and just to me at least and and revealing that you can only get when you live with a family. There is a website called couchsurfing.com, which used to be fabulous. I don't haven't been using it lately, but that is another way to, to meet locals and things like that. But the best thing is just to have an open mind and have an open itinerary, open schedule, and be friendly and open to everybody you meet. And last thing I'll say is to travel solo, because you're a lot more likely to get invited to a house if you're traveling alone than when you're traveling with a couple or certainly a group, mainly because one person looks lonely, people feel sorry for you, and they're like, oh, come on over, we'll be your friend, we'll help you out. If you're with a couple, then they're like, ah, they can take care of themselves, they'll stay at a hotel or do whatever they want to do. And also, you're less of a financial burden, because a lot of people, they're trying to be generous, they try to feed you, and they try to take care of you. And of course, it costs twice as much to feed two people's mouths than just one. So all these reasons make that traveling alone will be the best way to have those kinds of experiences. Yeah, I like that. Um, so you can leave the all-you-can-eat buffet girl at home and just head out <laughs> by yourself. That's right. <laughs> she can stay by herself. <laughs> That's right. She can eat by herself. All you want. <laughs> Let it loose. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh. I'm going to go fast in Cambodia. Yeah. <laughs> 
I love it. Um, so when you're going to a new country, are, are you kind of planning anything out in advance or are you just, it's just kind of whatever happens, happens? Or what, what's kind of your strategy whenever you, you're going to a new place? Well, one good strategy I like to do is also look at UNESCO World Heritage Sites because in general, they're always interesting places. And so if you're not sure what to do, just go to Wikipedia or do a Google search and look for where are the uh, UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And that I like to use as a baseline. And uh, But in general, I don't have much of an itinerary, generally don't have much of a plan. I have an open ticket. I don't know how long I'm going to spend, where I'm going to go and that kind of stuff. And I just generally talk to locals. There's some pros and cons about doing that because sometimes it's good to learn about the country's history so you can ask more interesting questions and 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 understand the nuances and the complexities of the region and maybe who colonized them and who, what was their, their story. But I also really like to go there sometimes without knowing anything and just letting the locals teach me about their history because oftentimes their history is very biased, whatever they're going to teach you. It's not be the same history that you read in Wikipedia, which is a little bit, you know, generally uh, less biased. But it's still fascinating to hear the myths that they have. And by the way, all countries have myths. The United States has so many myths about their, their founding and about the founding fathers and you know, uh, Lincoln and the, and the slavery and all sorts of stuff that we have, these, these myths that we have, that uh, we perpetuate. So if you talk to anybody in the United States, you're going to hear those myths. But then you, you might, and the same thing when you go to Russia, when you go to China, when you go to any country in the world, Chile, whatever, you're going to hear their stories, and that's interesting in its own right. So sometimes it's fun just to go there and and have a blank slate and not even know what you're going to you're going to see or do. Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I I love when I spend some time in a country is kind of picking up on um, their values, and then kind of I, I find that I, I take them with me, and they're kind of like little gems. So, for example, living in South Korea, I learned how uh, you know it's so collective. You're when you go out to eat, you're not just ordering for yourself; you're ordering as a group. You're eating together. Or living in Germany, it was you know so they're so efficient, everything's so well organized, and I kind of took that with me. And I call these like little gems. Are there any kind of gems that kind of stick stay out stick out in your mind that you've kind of took taken? Uh, with you after you've left the country, uh, um, after your travels? Patience. (laughs) That's one of the big ones. You know, one of the things is the United States society is extremely efficient. You know, maybe not as efficient as Japan or Germany, but they are very fucking efficient as a society compared to most places out there. And if you're in Africa, for example, the pace of things are, is extremely slow and you have to just get used to that because otherwise you're going to go crazy. And so I learned to become foster that patience and just realize that things are going to take a lot longer than you ever anticipated. So that to me is one of the key takeaways. Also a respect for elder people. A lot of societies respect them much more than in the United States. And again, this is one of the things that's so fun about traveling abroad is that you come back and you see the United States with different eyes or whatever your home country is. And all of a sudden you realize, huh, all these things that were you were oblivious to that all of a sudden stand out like a sore thumb when you come back. It could be either good or bad. It could be something that you really appreciate and you love about your country or something that you now realize it's, you're not so good at. And all of a sudden you thought it was great, but it's not. So you, you're talking about kind of coming back to the U.S. and the, perspective, the different perspective you have. I also find that whenever I come back, especially from a longer trip, that 
I come back a different new person. I feel like I've shed some kind of skin and I come back with, with a new perspective, uh, new vision. Like it's, it's so different when I come back um, to, to kind of compare to the, I think like the old former shelf that had left. Uh, and I really always find that, that fascinating that each time I come back, I have that same kind of reflection, a reflective time period when I'm walking through the airport. I'm like, wow, I'm, this is like something completely different. Um, anyways, uh, we, we talked a little bit about Africa. Were there any kind of horror stories that, that you had or any kind of misfortunes or uh, things that occurred during your travels? I did have some challenges, nothing horrible, horrible. Mm. I mean, I, I guess the worst thing that happened was when I was in Cameroon, I got strangled in an alleyway and yeah, I nearly strangled to death i've never noticed this jordan what do you think happens when you can you do you think you can scream when you're getting strangled i'm assuming not (laughs) yeah you know but the funny thing is i never thought about that (laughs) i always just thought oh somebody's gonna strangle me i can scream Mm -hmm. you can't yeah they're they're literally like you need breath to in order to scream (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's just a simple thing and nobody ever strangled me in my life and I, i discovered that when this guy was strangling me and another guy started ripping off my you know, the, 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 the wallet that I have, which only had like 20 bucks in it. And they tried to get my cell phone and they kept strangling me because I wouldn't give up my cell phone because either I had to give up the cell phone or I had to um, uh, hold on to the cell phone and then they would c- continue strangling me, the, the dude from, coming from behind. So that was an unpleasant experience. But I mean, that's about as well. I did have malaria six times. I guess that's also unpleasant. I did almost die. I had a fever that was incredibly high. I'd be hospitalized like three different times for those six different uh, malaria problems. But again, I, luckily, I, I didn't. I didn't die then either. I I was uncomfortably cold, uncomfortably comfort, hot in many places in Africa. Um, cold because I was hiking the tallest mountain of every African country, and so sometimes I'd get up high. I did lose my uh, wife and brother in in the tallest mountain of Chad. Um, uh, they slept overnight and I thought they were going to be dead. Um, luckily they survived. That's another long story, but anyway, yes, misfortunes. Um, but overall, if you think about spending five years to all 54 African countries, I think if you spent five years driving all around North America, shit would happen there too. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. And especially in those kind of situations where it's not this kind of safe setting where you're back home. I always think about it this way. When you're back home and you're working, I feel like the, the variance is very low of what's happening. You know, you might get a flat tire and you think, oh, this is terrible. Like I'm having a, a really low time period. But I think when you're traveling, the highs are so much higher. You know, some you're hiking and some locals in, 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 invite you over to drink some makali with them or you find a nice hidden little cafe or restaurant or who knows what happens. But the highs are somewhere you experience some kind of festival or holiday, uh, but the lows are so much lower. Right. So I, I, mm. I, f- I find that that variance is, is, is much more extreme. Um, but I think for me, it makes me feel alive. So <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And and I think what happens is we talked earlier about my long distance travels, uh, hiking, Mm -hmm. uh, when I went for hiking for months. And I think, again, what happens is that you have many more challenging and low situations there. Mosquitoes, incredible heat, uh, incredible cold, uh, crossing rivers, uh, getting wet, uh, rainstorms, uh, sleeping when your, your tent gets blown away or whatever, all sorts of challenges that you face. And assuming you actually, you know, live through them and, and you're, you're doing okay and you can do it kind of with a smile, ideally with a big smile, but you know that's superhuman to get there. But the point is that once you've done that, then you look back and you say, wow, compared to all the other shit I've gone through, 
in when I was hiking, whatever I'm suffering right now in Tunisia is nothing, mm-hmm. right? And whatever I'm suffering in Chicago is nothing compared to some of the challenges I faced when I was up in a mountain and it was snowing and cold and I was shivering. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a lot easier. And so I think one of the challenges is by going to travel, you might put yourself in uncomfortable situations. And that's good. Because like you said, it's going to make you alive and it's going to make you appreciate the good moments more. Mm-hmm. You know, as an aside, I'm going to go off on a tangent here because I was a religion major. And a lot of people talk about heaven. And heaven, what, I always ask them, well, what do you think heaven is? Oh, it's just like wonderful music and stuff like that. But, you know, I tell them, I don't think there's really a difference between heaven and hell. Because in heaven, things are perfect all the time. You eventually get normalized to that. And just that becomes normal. In hell, you're burning all the time. You're suffering all the time. But eventually, you're going to get used to that too. So you need hell. You need a good to, to, to be able to, you need bad in order to know what's good. You need something that tastes terrible to know what tastes good. You need contrast in life. And so the more contrast you have, the more interesting your life can be. Yeah, a relative reference point. I like that. Yeah, very good. Um, so let's shift focus a little bit to the third foot you have a country, uh, sorry, the third continent you have a, a foot in, which is Europe. And you've uh, written a book about Eastern Europe. What got you interested and inspired by exploring Eastern Europe? I called the book The Hidden Europe, What Eastern Europeans Can Teach Us. And I find it fascinating that so many people, when they talk about Europe, they're really just talking about Western Europe. They've largely, even today in 2023, they've largely ignored Eastern Europe. A lot of people don't really know much about Belarus. Many people haven't gone to Moldova or Ukraine or, uh, or even like Serbia or Kosovo or um, some people haven't even visited Croatia and Montenegro, which are fabulous, or Albania. Um, and then you, I know your family's from Poland, which is also some places that a lot of people haven't even gone there. And to me, that is drew me into it. And I started realizing, wow, it's basically a lot like Western Europe for half the price. <laughs> so it's great. Absolutely. I, 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 I really enjoy Eastern Europe too. I, I spent some time traveling and living uh, in Eastern Europe and, and I call them hidden gems uh, living out here. So uh, whether it's the beautiful town of Krakow that always kind of takes my breath away or snowboarding in the, oh my gosh, uh, Yasna, Tatras, yeah, it's Tatra Mountains um, that, that I really, really like for a, qu- a quarter or half the price of what it would cost to be in the Rocky Mountains. Um, I remember once looking at the price, I was like, one lift ticket in the Rocky Mountains is a week pass over there. And uh, yeah. <laughs> so you have all these places that are still kind of a little bit untouched, you know? So I, I, yeah. I, I completely, uh, I, I really find it fascinating that you, you've kind of have uh, explored them and, and written a book about them as well. Yes, yeah. So I wrote a book and I had 25 chapters, 25 countries. I defined Eastern Europe very broadly. And it was fascinating, of course, because many Eastern Europeans don't want to admit that they're from Eastern Europe. They are gonna. They always say that they're not in Eastern Europe. Polish people will never yeah, say they're in Eastern Europe. Europe. People from Czechia, yeah, Czechia, that's Eastern Europe, Hungary, Central Europe. Even people from Estonia will say, we're not Eastern Europe, we're Northern Europe. Uh, people from uh, the Balkans, they'll all say that was of Southern Europe. I mean, the only people who admit that they're in Eastern Europe are probably the Belarusians, maybe the Russians, and maybe the U- and of course the Ukrainians. That's about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody else denies yeah. they're, that they're in Eastern Europe. <laughs> and were there any kind of spots, any of these hidden gems or, during your travels that really kind of stand out in your mind? Kotor Montenegro, mm-hmm. K-O-T-O-R. 
you've got to go there. A lot of people go to Dubrovnik and they never bother to go about two hours south into uh, Dubrovnik is in Croatia, but just to, just near the Montenegrin border, you go to Kotor. It is absolutely fabulous. It's the southernmost fjords in Eastern Europe. And it is, you know, imagine these tall mountains that are 1,000 meters tall, 3,000 feet. And then there's this enormous bay around it and these old Venetian towns that are all walkable. Just a dream paradise and it's just amazing and more people don't go there wow it looks really lovely um yeah i have to i'll have to check i have to add that to my list of places to go um for sure and so while you uh visit all these places what what made you decide to finally write a book about it what got you interested in writing so i was hiking the appalachian trail and i asked myself what i would do with a, if i had all the money in the world and i thought well i would just you know travel the world and i would like to write about it because I like to write. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe I can write books that pay. So my first book was called Hike Your Own Hike, Seven Life Lessons from Backpacking Across America. And then my second book was The Hidden Europe, What Eastern Europeans Can Teach Us. And now I'm writing my third book, which is called The Unseen Africa, about my eight years in Africa, effectively. So that's what I like to do. I just love to distill some of the best travel stories and the best travel facts into a dense little volume of information. And I love to do that. Mm -hmm. And what does your writing process look like? Is there any kind of certain structure that goes about writing your stories? I wish. <laughs> I have got a horrible fucking strategy and structure. I lack it. I should be whipped and flogged every day. I'm not. The problem is that I'm not, I'm, I'm not desperate for money. And so as a result, I don't have this kind of looming thing like, shit, how am I going to pay next month's rent if I don't finish this fucking book? And, and you, know, you kind of need that pressure. You need that publisher who's going to be yelling at you, I need the book by next Thursday or whatever, the next chapter or whatever it is. So that's my problem. But having said that, I do have a little bit of structure. What I try to do is when I travel, I try to take as many notes, as, not as many notes, but to take some of the, the key takeaways, interesting things. And whenever I'm reading, and I do read a lot, I, I note any facts. So if I say, oh, I just learned an interesting fact about Tanzania that I didn't know, I'll put it in the chapter in my notes. So what happens is that if you do that after a couple of years, you've accumulated enough what I call the skeleton of the book. And already you have, like in my case, I already had like 200,000 words of quote-unquote notes that I had. So that makes you feel better because you're not looking at a blank page mm -hmm. and it takes away that pressure. And then all you got to do then is kind of like create a story and a narrative around those facts, stories, anecdotes. Mm -hmm. And then do you work with uh, publishers or you self-publish? I self-published. My brother did two novels uh, through traditional publishers. Here's the dirty secret about the publishing industry. Unless they're going to give you a six-figure advance, it's really not worth going with a traditional publisher unless you have zero marketing skills. But if you have zero marketing skills, your book is not going to go anywhere anyway. And they're probably... So here's the dirty secret about uh, publishers. If they're going to give you a six-figure advance, they've already invested a lot in you and so they're going to throw money after you and they're going to have, give you a marketing budget and that kind of stuff. But still, they're probably not going to give you a book deal until unless you already have, quote-unquote, a platform, a lot of people. So if you're podcast, if you're Joe Rogan and you've got a ton of podcast listeners... They're going to sign you a contract very easily because you know that Joe Rogan just needs to tell them, hey, I've got a new book out. And it doesn't matter if it's just shit that he wrote while he was sitting on the toilet. It's in, his fans will buy it. They know there's a ready-made audience that they're going to sell at least 50,000 copies, and that's going, to make, that's going to be profitable for them. But even if you write the most brilliant book since Shakespeare's plays, it doesn't matter if you can't, if you don't have a marketing 
strategy and you don't have already a big marketing base. And so they want to see people who have thousands and thousands of followers, if not millions of followers, and already established before you've written the book. And it's very frustrating because you say to yourself, well, if I have millions of followers, why the fuck do I need you <laughs> I could just self-publish the book. And I don't need you assholes to take away and give me 10% of the, of the, of the book sales. You know, and that's what they do. They just give you a little piddly amount. So it's kind of, it's a strange industry. It's really not a good way to make money. Mm-hmm. Definitely not a good way to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to do it because you love it. And, you know, yeah, I love it, unfortunately. Yeah, to share your journey. And that's kind of one of the reasons why I do this podcast. I really enjoy hearing people's stories. And, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> perfect example. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks you're making millions, yeah. <laughs> Jordan, from this podcast, but you're, this is costing you money and time yeah. and, and you're getting jack diddly yeah. shit. That's this. true. That's true. And that's why the people listening to this podcast should send Jordan money. Do you have a Patreon? No, I do not, but I think I'm going to start one right now. <laughs> there, start one right now on this episode. And anybody's listening, send Jordan $1. Everybody me. listens, <laughs> send just two bucks a month. That's yeah. it. If everybody did that, you'd be golden. Yeah. And speaking of, how do you kind of financially support yourself? Are you also working or do you mostly seek uh, diff- alternative uh, or how are you kind of getting um, getting by financially when you when you travel? Very very lucky that I had when I I worked and I lived like a monk when I was working in Silicon Valley. So I was making a nice salary and I was living well below my lease. I was living like a student. I had a bicycle. I, you know, I just I rented a room in a house for six hundred bucks next to Microsoft, and they were paying me two hundred grand a year. So I saved up a ton of money. Then I invested it very well. So I, I was good at buying at the bottom of the stock market and doing very well. When I came back from Africa, I sold all my stocks and bought a bunch of cryptocurrency and that took off a lot. So in the end, I actually have more money every year, every five year period. My, my pot of my net worth actually increases. My net worth now is high. I haven't worked since 2006, but my net worth is higher today than it's ever been. And that's just because of good investment, living below your means and that helps you, uh, and travel inexpensively. You know, you can do that. And that doesn't mean being a stingy little fuck because a lot of times people are moochers. You know, they'll have these TED Talks that say, hey, I traveled all over the world with like $3 in my pocket. (laughs) And how did you pull that off? Because you just mooched off every little person you saw. And that's not good. You're a fucking ambassador when you travel. You might be the first American or uh, white person that some places I've never seen. And if you go there and all you do is just eat their food and, you know, let them drive you around and you don't contribute to the gasoline bill and you don't contribute to the food uh, budget, you're just a moocher and you're, you're not a good ambassador. Give, be generous while you travel. So that's key. But in order to do that, you have to have a little bit of money. So the key thing is just live below your means and that will give you and invest your money wisely and that should give you enough uh, flexibility when you travel. Yeah. It's actually funny when you're talking about this. I had a podcast guest that was recommended by someone else and they had a TED Talk like traveling on $5 a day and I was already I'm like, "Oh, I was like kind of dreading it." But their story was so nice. What they did was it was a couple that was Japanese and Indian. And what they did was they they had this little scalable, foldable bike. And they started in Thailand and they were going to finish in Iran. And what they did was they brought their own clothes and food and seasoning. So like the Indian clothes and, and, and some food and Japanese. And what they would do is they would have locals invite them over like in the middle of Thailand, some rural part or wherever. And they would say, hey, you guys look like you need a place to stay at night. And what they would do is they would dress up in their in their clothing 
uh, and their local or cultural clothing and, and sometimes make them a meal or share some kind of stories or whatever because they knew that those people there would most certainly probably never have the chance to go to India or go to Japan or maybe even leave Thailand for that matter. And it was, an, and it was a, a way for them to bring the world to them into their houses and I, I really enjoyed uh enjoyed hearing that story because you're right if you're just uh, if you're just taking and taking and taking like no, no i mean that energy is just a, it's a bad energy you know uh i, I really believe in that and that the secret to living is giving and you know when you give you, you feel better and everything works out better so i i totally uh, agree with that and there's another thing you can do i think is even if you don't have money to, let's say, buy gifts or buy them toilet paper to restock them or things like that, you can do simple things like clean the fucking toilet, clean the kitchen. Um, you can sweep the, the floor. You can offer to babysit for their kids while they go off and go do something. Um, there's so many, uh, you can teach them a language. You can tell them, I'll spend three hours with you t- improving your English. Whatever it is, there are certain things, services you can do that will help give them value. But you just got to think about that, you know, just think about that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I, was in a, <laughs> I was in a very dicey situation, just kind of just learning English and came to my mind was we did a motorcycle trip from north of uh, Vietnam, Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh City. And we pulled over in a small little town and uh, we popped into this bar, but I, it just felt seedy. And uh, the whole time I get in, I'm like, oh, like I'm looking at the door. I'm like something, if someone does something to us here, like no one has any idea where we're at and they could do anything they want. And these, like, you know, cringy looking guys came out and they were like giggling and laughing and then some young girls came out and I was like something weird is going on and I was like uh oh this is going to go down badly but then in the end they're like hey can you teach us some English or like about numbers and uh, it ended up being a really funny situation from what I thought was going to be a murder it turned into a, a teaching <laughs> session so <laughs> so yeah that's a great story great story yeah I mean every English speaker you're blessed yeah. if you're a native English speaker you're blessed yeah you got something that everybody wants yeah yeah um, so the last thing I wanted to kind of discuss with you, I know you, you're one of your five-year goals was to climb the, uh, the tallest mountains in Africa. What does the future look like for you? What are the, do you have any kind of goals or visions that you're kind of working towards? Oh, for sure. Um, so once I finish this goddamn book, I'm writing about Africa. I hope to get that done by the end of this year. Then I have to do a little promotion to, to get it out there. And then I want to st- do what I call my into Islam trip. So I want to, if you look at the Middle East, what I call West and Central Asia. Nobody talks about West Asia, but West Asia is the Middle East. And Central Asia, of course, is Central Asia. So I want to spend about, there's about 25 countries there, and I want to spend about a good year traveling around there. That's step one. Step two, East Asia. So India and everything east of India, including Siberia. Step three, Oceania. So all the shit in the Pacific Ocean. And and then maybe the Caribbean too. I want to buy a boat. Sorry, for the Oceania trip, I want to buy a boat, a catamaran probably, to just sail around the world, especially the Pacific Ocean. I don't know how to sail yet, but I'll figure it out. So that's the the, rent, the three-step plan. Probably take me at least 10 years. Yeah. Be careful. We had a, I had a guest on that uh, want, did the same thing, I think from San Francisco, sold uh, his house and wanted to sail for one year and currently still living on the boat 10 years uh, from there. So he has a family on there and a huge YouTube following. So <laughs> what, 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 he's not, he hasn't gone anywhere. No, he, he, once he left, he never came back. He's been on the boat for 10 years now. 
Oh, okay, okay. So he does sing. Yeah, he okay, that's okay. all he does. And they have a huge YouTube following. Okay, and okay. I think I heard that. Okay, yeah, I heard that. What's the name S- of the S.V. Delos is the name of the boat. Um, and, no, but the name of the, the podcast or the, 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 the YouTube channel? So it's S.V. Delos. It's the name of their boat. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there's okay. there's a there's a, a lot of people okay. actually doing that, but uh, they're 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 probably one of the ones who have the the bigger following on YouTube. And uh, yeah, it's the same thing. He just had the itch working in corporate America and wanted to do a one year trip and met his wife. Now he's raising a family on the sailboat, going up and down the Caribbean and all over the world. So once I heard that, I'm like, that's got to be on my list as well. <laughs> Poor Jordan, <laughs> you're making your list longer and longer yeah. every damn interview. I'm like Africa hiking. I was on their Appalachian Trail, um, so yeah. so yeah. And I, I told you about Cotor Montenegro. Yeah, that's hundred uh, percent. I love places like that because I've never heard of that. And so I'm like, if someone's recommending who's been to a lot of places, a place like this, you got you know it's got to be good. So I'm gonna add that to the list. Do you also have? I'm kind of curious, just as a side note. Do you ever have a voice in your head that says, "Hey, I should move back and live a stable lifestyle," or is it always kind of like, "Keep going"? Yeah, keep going. Yeah, and you know, the stable lifestyle is always going to be there for you if you ever want it. Mm-hmm. It's always going to be there. The society is kind of geared to encourage you to do that. So if I ever, and I might get to that point. Who knows? I might get to the point. But if, but I find that when I want stability, all I need to do is slow down. Mm. So, for example, I've been in Morocco for several months now. And so I feel like I'm pretty stable. I'm in the same apartment several months. I, I slow down. I'm still in Africa, but whatever. And then eventually I get kind of ants in my pants and I say, okay, I'm going to go. Like, for example, now I'm going to be going to Germany for three weeks. Then I go to Iceland for another three weeks. And then I'll probably come back to Morocco and I might go to Canada after that. Mm-hmm. All right. But eventually I got to finish my book and then go to the Middle East and do that trip. That's that's my next big plan. Absolutely. But yeah. Well, cool. All right. Uh, well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And usually as a wrap up, what we do is called the Travel Tribe, Travel Tribe Toss Up. I just ask three questions and uh, you just answer the first thing that comes to mind. Is that cool with you? Yes. All right. First thing, what was the most unique thing that you ate during your travels? Uh, ants in Mexico. I th- I, they're just, yeah, there were ants. Any flavor to them? Spicy? I think they were, I can't remember. Yeah, I guess they were kind of spicy. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. I, but they were, I also ate a snake, a snake in Africa. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, would you recommend any of those experiences? Or <laughs> Oh, my favorite one that I definitely recommend is... is um, grasshoppers uh, crickets in niger in the sahel i love them because they're they're kind of crunchy they're like potato chips you're you're eating the exoskeleton it sounds disgusting but the way they spice it is so nice it's like you're eating like potato chips but they're high in protein and you know when you hear these people saying like insects are the future of protein you get it because all of a sudden you're eating these things and they like taste totally good i mean if you you prepare it well it tastes great and they're so cheap so if you ever go to let's say the sahel Look for uh, insects uh, and crickets, mm-hmm. and they're delicious. I love them, especially if they're spiced well, and they usually are. Okay, very cool. Uh, second question, what was the most embarrassing moment or cultural misunderstanding that you've had? Cultural misunderstanding. Hmm. I guess when I was in Mauritania, I, you know, there's a lot of times, for example... <laughs> Last time I was there, there was a female that I was friends with, but there, you know, men and women are never supposed to be alone. So she would always come and be chaperoned whenever she comes and visited me. 
and she would bring me food and that kind of stuff. She would cook and stuff like that. She was very generous and nice. But it was funny that I tried, to, you know, tried to hug her goodbye, and she just no, 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 you can't hug me. <laughs> like, Get away, creep! <laughs> I've known you for I, I've known you for a fucking month. We talk almost every day. I mean, I'm leaving this fucking country. Can't we just hug goodbye? Like, nope. You know, not even a kiss on the cheek. Nothing. I'm like, God, I've seen this girl every day for a month, and I can't even hug her. So anyway, that was a cultural insensitivity on my part. Yeah, come to Poland. You can kiss your uncle or whoever you want. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's right. That's right. But it's interesting also, um, she, one time, her friend that chaperoned her left like five minutes early, so I was alone with her for five Ooh, minutes. what'd you do? And, <laughs> and exactly, I grabbed her ass. No, I didn't. And, and she actually jumped over the fence to leave because she didn't want to go through my front door because she knew if she went through the front door, it's possible that a villager sees her coming out of my house alone. Jeez. So she jumped over the fence into the neighbor's yard and then got out <laughs> through their entrance. That's how much she liked. She just jumped headfirst out of the <laughs> over the fence saying, I can't spend five minutes with this guy. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. great. All right, last question. Uh, for anyone who's looking to follow your footsteps or looking to also get some adventure uh, under their belt, are there any kind of tips or advice that you would like to share with them? As I think I mentioned earlier, was is the idea of doing camping and backpacking. If you do that and you learn to like it, that's the challenge because a lot of people just can't ever like it. But just learn to sleep outside. That's probably the simplest form of living that you can live. And if you can learn to be happy in those conditions, then the whole world seems like luxury. Then, you know, I would go into an African household. They didn't have running water. They had no electricity. But when you're camping, you don't have running water or electricity either. So it's like totally cool. But they might have um, a bucket. You know, they might have a, a spigot and they give you a bucket of water, cold water. And you can like, huh, I can get water just from a spigot. I normally have to walk like 100 meters to get it from a stream. And here it's just, you know, piped water coming from a spigot. Great. You know, that's a, 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 a miracle. And especially when you get to places that has hot water, you're like, wow, great. So the point is, is that... Try to uh, learn to do camping, and then all of a sudden the world becomes a wonderful place. Wow, great <laughs> advice. I like that. Well, Francis, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really enjoyed it. I could sit here for hours listening to all your travels, <laughs> and it's, it's just nice to hear some of uh, the tips and lessons you've learned, um, advice uh, you've had over your whole journey, and it's a hell of a journey. So I look forward to um, uh, seeing your next book come out, and uh, if people want to learn more about you or find out more information, uh, where can they find you? I have a Wander Learn podcast. So it's just one, one word, Wander Learn. And you can also go to wanderlearn.com. And I just want to thank you, Jordan, because I know uh, how much work it is to do a podcast. And I don't know if your listeners actually appreciate it. And it's a lot of work. You do it because you love it. And so thank you for taking the time. And I hope all the people who listen to also appreciate you and somehow support you whenever you ask for their help. All right. Thank you so much, Francis. Well, hopefully I'll have you on again sometime in the future with more stories. So thanks again. Well, that does it for this week's episode of Travel Tribe Podcast. Join us each Tuesday as we release new episodes with great adventures. Until then, remember, the most dangerous thing you can do in life is to play it safe. Stay adventurous.